You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. and ask God's help as we look at His Word today. Our Father, we do gather here not because we are interested in the platitudes of men or in quotes and anecdotes or storytelling, but because as Your people we want to hear Your voice and we believe that it is in this book that You have spoken to us. And so we come to Your Word and we ask that now as we look at it that You would be honored and pleased to visit us through it and may we hear You speak to our hearts, to our conscience, to our wills, And Father, we ask that you would give us the grace this day to hear you in this book and to obey that voice. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, this last week was a fantastic week, was it not? Do you know why it was a fantastic week? Because you had such a concrete opportunity to apply Philippians 4, verse 4, to rejoice always, and again I say rejoice. How did you do on election night with your rejoicing? Everybody says great. He said, Jim, if you're asking me, were you happy with the outcome? No, I wasn't happy. I'm not talking about happiness. Remember, joy is not an emotion, is it? You say, was I laughing on election night? Maybe a couple of you were. Probably most of you weren't. But joy is not laughter, is it? Joy might produce laughter. But what did we find out last week? That we are to rejoice always, even on election night, even when things don't turn out maybe as we voted or would like to have, maybe when things seem dark, whatever circumstance it is, we are to rejoice always. But joy is not an emotion. Joy is not laughter. Joy is not a feeling that we get, a mountaintop feeling. It's not happiness over a circumstance or a situation. What is joy? Joy is that deep-seated, deep-down confidence that God is in control for my good and for His glory. And it is contentment in that. And so now I ask you, on election night, were you content to let God be God and to set over us the lowliest of men? I borrow, that's biblical, that comes right out of Daniel. That's what the Bible says. God rules in the affairs of men And He sets over the nations whomever He pleases, even giving authority to the lowliest of men. Now, not all men are lowly. Well, actually, all men are lowly. Whether it's Barack Obama or John McCain, all men are lowly. So I'm not just picking fun at Barack Obama and calling him a lowly man. He's lowly just as you and I are lowly. We're all mere men. But were you content? Did you have that deep-seated confidence that whatever the outcome of this, 
God is in control and He's sovereign and He's working out His eternal purpose. Uh, Dave said to me, Dave Rich, one of our elders, said to me after election night, he said, if it will hasten the day of His appearing, then bring it on, no matter what it is. If it will make that day come any quicker, then let it happen. Whatever might be, whatever might come, we can trust in the confidence of God. So it was a great week, wasn't it? Well, if joy and rejoicing is a deep-seated contentment in letting God be God and knowing that He's in control of all things for my good and for His glory, then I can rejoice, that is, to be thankful in all situations toward Him. That's what verse 4 speaks of. Today we're looking at verse 5, another little statement that really is the expression of my contentment, but it's toward others. So when I am content in the Lord, I express that toward the Lord by way of rejoicing and thanksgiving. When I am content in God, then I express that toward others by, verse 5, let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Now, we saw last week that we're in verses 4 through really 7, 8, and 9. It's a series of statements that the Apostle Paul is giving, which tells us what our responsibilities are, tells us what we are to do, sort of brief, very um, disjointed, as it were, commands. You are to rejoice always. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing. Sort of some really brief, straightforward, bullet point type of commands that Paul gives us. That's in Philippians chapter 4. We're just going to be looking at verse 5 today. And there's two commands there. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. And the second command, or really statement, the Lord is near. We want to look at those two things. Now remember what our overarching theme, overarching, arching, arching theme for Philippians chapter 4 is. The peace of Christian living. Chapter 1 was all about the purpose of Christian living. For me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Chapter 2 gives us the pattern for Christian living. Don't consider yourselves only, but look out also for the interest of others. Considering others is more important than yourself. Jesus Christ Himself being the pattern that we are to follow. Chapter 3 gives us the prize of Christian living, which is that upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And chapter 4 gives us the peace of Christian living. And that is that deep-seated, deep-down contentment in God. And you see peace written all over chapter 4. Verses 1 through 3 is the peace between Yodi and Syntyche. I urge them to live in harmony in the Lord. That's peace between brothers and sisters within the congregation. Then you get to chapter 4 and you have this attitude of rejoicing, which really is an expression of the peace of your heart. You're able to rejoice no matter what happens. Verse 5 it shows us the peace that uh, comes through us as we express it to other people in letting our gentle spirit be known to all men. Then we're to be anxious for nothing but to pray about everything. And knowing that what? The peace of God will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Chapter 4 is all about that peace of Christian living. So, verse 5. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Two statements. We'll look at both of them and see what the implications are for our lives. When I read that statement this last week, let your gentle spirit be known to all men. I thought to myself, that is a statement that I have read probably hundreds of times. Never really spent a lot of time thinking about it meditating on it, considering what the implications of it were. But as I started to study it out and to think about it and meditate upon it and really look at what Paul is saying, especially in its context, I came to the understanding that is a statement that has profound meaning and it is a standard that I think most of us, and I know I certainly do, fall, for, fall, try that again, fall far short of fulfilling in my everyday life all the time. Let your gentle spirit the word gentle is really the key word in that phrase. Gentle, epicase, is a Greek word that is so 
so colorful, so beautiful. It is one of those rare Greek words that just has absolutely no English equivalent. You'll notice in your Bible, it's probably translated either as gentle spirit, if you have the NASB, as gentleness, if you have the NIV or the New King James, and as moderation, if you have the Old King James. Now, the idea of moderation, moderation really is probably a poorer translation, although it does capture one small element of that word, and that's the idea of somebody not given to extremes of behavior. That's moderation. You don't go off onto this tangent and then that tangent, not given to the ups and downs, the wild emotional swings, the wild theological swings. That's somebody who's characterized by moderation. Sort of a balanced, pretty even keel individual. That's only part of what's spoken of or, or being addressed there by Paul, that he uses that word epiakase. It's a word that means graciousness. And I'm just going to, actually I'm going to spend most of my time here this morning just describing to you what that word means. Because it is really difficult to come up with any single, unique English translation. So let me sort of draw you some pictures. Somebody who was gentle in the sense that Paul is using this word is somebody who was balanced, somebody who was fair, somebody who was equitable. We might use it of a, of a judge who's sitting in a position of authority over the law, looks at the letter of the law, and sees that the, the judgment for a certain crime would be X, Y, and Z. But then he has somebody coming before him who's violated the spirit of that law and the intent of that law. And the judge might look at the punishment and then look at the crime and say, you know what? Without doing injustice, I want to be fair and equitable. And if I give this person this punishment, it's really not going to fit the crime. So I want to see that the standards are met, but I want to do so in a way that's gracious, that is fair, and that is equitable. Like if you tell your child, if you lie to me, you're going to get a whooping. Whooping, favorite word around my house. You're going to get a whooping. And then you find out that your child lied to you about something. It was maybe a very small and insignificant lie. Maybe they lied about what your Christmas gift was or where your Christmas gift was or some little thing to deceive you. As the judge in your home, do you say, all right, you lied to me about where my Christmas gift is. You're getting a whooping. Do you do that? No. As a... At the case individual, a gentle spirit, you might sit down with your child and say, look, I understand what you did and I understand why you did it, but here's some, here's the truth about this situation. You shouldn't have done this. You should have told the truth. Uh, that's a gracious individual, a gentle individual. Balanced, moderate, fair, equitable, truthful. That's the idea. John MacArthur says it's a sweetness, a reasonableness, a generosity, goodwill, friendliness, magnanimity, charity toward the faults of others, Mercy toward the failures of others, indulgence of the failures of others, leniency, big heartedness, forbearance, and gentleness. And by leniency, we're not talking about overlooking blatant sin. We're not talking about overseeing somebody's moral failings and just being lenient in that way. It's not that at all. It's that willingness to yield, that sort of bendableness, a big heartedness, a magnanimity, a bigness of character and heart, goodwill, friendliness, graciousness, gentleness, generosity. All of those words are are packed into that. It's the willingness to overlook the failures of others. Do you have that? When your spouse lets you down? Now, I'm not talking about when your spouse sins against you. I'm not talking about when your children sin. But when somebody does something that's really not a moral failure, it's not a sin per se, it's just a weakness. It's a defect. It's a, man, they let me down. They disappointed me. They did meet my expectations. Whatever it is, they have this, this thing that is a weakness. It's not necessarily a sin. Or do you see, when you see weakness in somebody else, you kind of look down your nose and say, 
Well, I've never been tempted by that. I would never fail that way. I certainly don't have that weakness or that lack of strength. An epic case individual is somebody who sees the weaknesses of others and then says, I can understand that. I can be lenient toward that. I can overlook that. Hendrickson, the German commentator, said, It is the willingness to yield wherever yielding is possible without violating any real principle. Listen, it's the willingness to yield whenever yielding is possible without violating any real principle, without compromising morally, without sinning, without violating your convictions, without compromising truth. It's the willingness to bend a gentleness, a moderation, a charitableness, a big-heartedness. It's the willingness, now we find ourselves back in chapter 2, don't we? To look out not only for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. To consider other people as more important than yourself. Their needs, their wants, their desires, their interests as better and higher than your own. And to not look out just for yourself, but for other people. That's the idea. A yieldingness. It's the willingness to yield and say, I can bend this way. I don't have to compromise morally. I don't have to violate truth or compromise truth. If that's what you would like, I'm willing to sacrifice that. That's the gentle spirit. Now, I can't help but notice that I think at least, or I suspect, that it was the lack of this that caused the problem between Yodi and Syntyche in verse 1 and 2 and 3. I think we could agree with that, couldn't we? Whatever it was that happened with Yodia and Syntyche, there was something that happened there and they either didn't yield or they didn't show the big heartedness. It really is a a slowness to offend and a quickness to forgive. Do you have that? Do you offend easily? Somebody overlooks you for something? Somebody doesn't tell you something? Somebody doesn't say hi to you or look directly at you in the eye as they're walking through the sanctuary some Sunday morning? Or somebody says something to you that really probably better should have been left unsaid? Are you quick to get up in a huff and hold a gripe and be bitter and resentment and critical and say, well, I'll be a long time before I will just keep that to myself. I won't say anything about that to anybody but my wife and my kids and my closest friends and the elders. Keep it a secret. That's what a secret is. Something you tell somebody, tell people one person at a time. Do you do that? Or are you slow to take offense? You say, hey, love covers a multitude of sins. It's a weakness. It's inadequacy. I understand that. Probably a reason for that. I'm going to read the best motivation into that. I'm going to assume the best about that. And I'm just going to be charitable and and let that fly. And I'm just not even out of my mind, out of sight, out of mind. It's gone. It's done. It's over. It's It's dealt with. Not to ever think about it again. And a quickness to forgive. Or do you say, I forgive that person. A hundred percent. I forgive that person. That's not epicase. Epicase is that magnanimity of spirit, that big heartedness that just says, I'm going to be slow to offend. I'm going to be yeah, slow to offend, quick to forgive. I want to make sure I get the right adjectives in there. I'm going to be slow to offend. I'm going to be quick to forgive. I'm going to be gracious and gentle and kind and big hearted and magnanimous about the whole thing and just not take offense and not worry about it. That's epicase. You are to let that be evident to all men. It is the willingness to yield one's rights to somebody else. We all know what our rights are, right? Some of you have the 
First ten amendments of the Constitution all memorized. I think that that's great. You know what your rights are. You know what your legal rights are. We all think that we have rights not only under the Constitution, but under the governance of the church and under us as autonomous individuals. And We have our rights. We're going to insist upon it. I have the right to dignity. I have the right to be treated with respect. I have the right to this, this, this. And you could probably list a hundred of them right now. Epic case is the willingness to say, I'm going to yield my rights. I know I have the right to this, but I'm willing to give this up for this individual. That's the gentle spirit. John Eady said, let a man be zealous and enterprising, pure and upright, yet what a rebuke to his Christianity if he is universally declared to be stiff, impracticable, unamiable, and austere in his general deportment. And here's what he was saying. What good does all of your Christian graces do and all of your joy and all of your moral purity and your integrity, what does it do if you don't have a gentle spirit? What does it accomplish for you? You may be the most... The person with the greatest integrity, you may be morally pure, faithful to your spouse, faithful to your family, faithful to your God, a morally upright in every way. No impure thing do you let come before your eyes. Yet, if you are a cynical, bitter, quick to offend, slow to forgive, unamiable, uncharitable, ungracious individual in all of your conduct with all people or any people, then what does your moral purity do for you? You may have integrity in all of your business dealings. Be honest with your customers, honest with your boss, honest with your employees, honest with the government, honest with everybody that you come into contact with. But if you are uncharitable and ungracious and unamiable and austere and cold and bitter and cynical, what good does your integrity do you? Right? You may have everything else going for you in your Christian life. But if you do not have a gentle spirit, it profits you nothing. It is such a rebuke to your Christian faith if all of those things do not affect the way in which you come across to other people as being gracious and kind and forgiving and gentle. There's just, there's just nothing. I could describe this for hours because there's just no, no single word in the English language that captures this. But this word means all of these things are to be part of your spirit, that Here's a good translation. Gracious gentleness. Gracious gentleness. The word was used in the Old Testament, Psalm 86, verse 5. For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon you. That word was used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. That word was used to describe the gracious rule of God. It's also used in the New Testament of overseers. Elders are to be Gentle, it's used in 1 Timothy chapter 3, it's used in Titus chapter 1, it's used in Second Corinthians chapter 10 of Paul, where he describes himself with the meekness and the gentleness of Christ, and of course Jesus himself is the prime example of this type of gentleness. Now are we talking about compromising morally? No. Are we talking about compromising truth? No. Are we talking about being soft and squishy and not taking a stand and not having a backbone? No. I hope you all know me better than that. That's not what I'm endorsing. I'm not saying you overlook sin and you overlook compromise. It's none of that. This is the character of Jesus. And Jesus confronted religious hypocrites. He confronted error. He confronted false teaching. He warned about false teachers. He did all of those things to protect the true followers and those who wanted to walk in the truth. But He was a friend of sinners. And people wanted to be around Him. Why? Because He had a gracious spirit. Now, maybe those Pharisees to whom he said, you have your father, the devil, he was a liar from the beginning and you're a liar just like he is. Maybe they would not have characterized that as a gentle spirit, but he had a gentle spirit. 
And I think that even in the rebuke that he gave to the Pharisees and all of the horrible things that he accused them of and pointed out that they were doing, all of those things, I think he did with a gentleness, an epicase, a gentle spirit. I was thinking back this last week to the people in my life who have affected me or influenced me profoundly that had this type of spirit. Some of them are sitting here in this congregation. You point them out, people who have this spirit, and you've never seen anything but that type of gentleness toward anybody. Uh, one of the people that probably, I'll give you two examples of people who profoundly affected me and displayed this. The first one I ran into was a man named Mr. Peeler. He was one of the Bible professors, actually the founder of the Bible college that I went to. Mr. Peeler, when I met him, was 80 years old. had been teaching at the Bible college for 60 years, the whole time of the, the Bible college had been there. He was still teaching when I was there. He taught all the way through my first, second, and third years. Mr. Peeler was a gracious, gentle individual. Now, he was a preacher and a teacher and a theologian of the old school, which meant he had convictions, and they were strong convictions. And he didn't saddle up to any theological liberals or emergent types in his day. He didn't compromise any convictions, any truth, nothing. And every once in a while, he'd stand up in chapel and he'd launch a few salvos out at us students to remind us of just how weak and uh, squish-squashy and weak-boned we were. And yet, when you sat down and talked with Mr. Peeler, there were a few people at the Bible college that I'd like to sit down and have tea or coffee with because he was the most gentle, gracious, graciously gentle person you've ever met in your whole life. I'd go over to his house and sit down, and he was never much for conversation. It was always me who carried the conversation. I look back on it now, and I realize he was probably trying to let the conversation die so that I would leave. But even though he was trying to get rid of me, he did so in such a gracious and gentle way. And I always thought, you know, if you're going to be somebody that has strong convictions and loves the truth, you're going to have to be cold and bitter and stern, and you're really going to have to make your point. And Mr. Peeler showed me that that's not the case. Second person that profoundly affected me at Bible college was another professor. Four years later, I sat under him. His name was Phil Powers. He was my fourth year Bible professor. Now, Phil was one of these giant intellects. This guy was smart, and I mean spooky smart. He had one of those brains that throbs like you see on Star Trek. There's just all that stuff going on. You can see the synapses firing in through his skin. That kind of smart. He, he was so smart he had an IQ. And I've always wanted one of those. Phil Powers had one of those, and it was a big one. And I always thought that if somebody was smart and if they were a genius, a brainiac like that, that they would be sort of cold and emotionless and austere and sort of standoffish. But Phil Powers showed me that that's not true. One of the most gracious individuals. Anytime you were in the presence with Phil Powers of more than 10 minutes, you got this feeling that he could, no matter what the discussion was about, he could crush you by the weight of his intellect and his arguments and his reasoning and his personality. But yet you would never walk away from Phil Powers ever feeling crushed intellectually or in any other way. Always so gentle, always so encouraging. I thought if you're going to be smart and if you're going to have convictions about truth, you're going to have to be cold and curt and bitter and stern and emotionless and austere and unamiable and ungracious. That's not true. Not true at all. Friends, this is a character quality that you and I need to cultivate. It's just like joy. It is the product of the Spirit of God. It is the fruit of the Spirit of God, but it's something that you and I have to cultivate. It's something that you and I have to stop and say, look, am I doing this toward all men? What does Paul say? It says, let your gentle spirit be known to all men. Now, that's where I have the problem. If Paul just left off the all men part, I would be fine with this whole passage. Wouldn't influence me whatsoever because then I would be free to choose to whom I want to show my gentle spirit. But Paul doesn't do that. Just like rejoicing always. 
If He had just said rejoice, I wouldn't have a problem. It's the always that gets me, right? It's the rejoice always. The totality of it. Let your gentle spirit be known. I can handle that. I can show my gentle spirit to you. I'll give you two hours Sunday morning. I'll just be as gentle as a lamb for two hours. And then I'll leave here and I'll go back to work. I'll go back to my family. I'll go back to my friends and show you just how ungentle I can be. But Paul says to all men, to all men, does that include your mother-in-law? No, because it says all men. And my mom's not. No, of course it does. It's a, it doesn't mean just men. It means all mankind. So yes, my mother-in-law. And I have to get in a mother-in-law salvo because she's going to come and visit me in a couple of days. Actually, I think it's a couple weeks, isn't it? Weeks. It's going to feel like a couple days. It's going to go by like that. To all men. Now, if he had just said, let your gentle spirit be known or evident, then the Philippians or you and I might have read this and said, Paul's obviously speaking about showing gentleness to my Christian brothers and sisters. The people who are in the pew next to me or behind me or in front of me or across the way. The people I see every day who are Christians. But certainly he can't mean those who persecute me and those who are hostile toward me and those who wrong me and those that I work with because they drive me nuts. And certainly he can't mean my family. My extended family is a bunch of lunatics. He can't mean them. He might come up with all these other excuses. But when Paul says all men, suddenly you realize, wow, there's enough in that verse to keep me busy for the rest of my life. And if he had not said all men, then we might assume the opposites and say, well, I can show grace to my the outsiders, those who persecute me, because they need to see Jesus. So I need to respond with grace and charity toward them. But my brother and sister in Christ, no, no, they need to, they need to snap too and start fulfilling my requirements and my obligations and my expectations, and I expect more from them. I don't need to show grace to the person in front of me in the pew. They don't need witness to. They're already saved. But all men means all men. And suddenly you and I are confronted with the reality that the application of this is probably far more uncomfortable than we want to realize. Isn't it? Because all men means, yes, my mother-in-law and my father-in-law and my brother-in-law and my sister-in-law. Enough of the in-laws. It also means my boss, my employees, my employer, the company, the guy who owns the company, my supervisor, my co-worker, my brother, sister in Christ, my children, my spouse, my husband or my wife, my neighbor, my political opponent, person who doesn't see things the way that I do, the guy that cuts me off in traffic. I go on. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. Friends, there's enough in that one sentence to keep me busy for the rest of my life. But there's another one. And this maybe is a little less convicting, more encouraging. The second phrase that he gives us in verse 5 is what? Second sentence? The Lord is near. Now, by the Lord, I think the Apostle Paul means the Lord Jesus Christ. I think that's obvious. What I don't think is so obvious is exactly what Paul means by near. Is Paul speaking spatially or is Paul speaking temporally? By spatial, we mean space as in near or in the vicinity of. And the word is used in the New Testament of that. One place was near this place, or this person was near that person in the vicinity of. Is Paul speaking in terms of space as if to say, the Lord Jesus is close at hand, He is with us, He is near to us in our vicinity? Or is the Apostle Paul speaking in terms of, of, of time, temporally, as in His coming is near, or His appearing is near, or you're going to be with Him is near? Your being in the presence of Christ and with Him is a near thing. Which one is he talking about? Now, I think that it is true that the Lord is near in the sense of spatially with us, 
in the vicinity. That word is used that way. And it is true that the Lord is near to all who call upon Him in truth. It is, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He is near to the destitute. He is close at hand. He has brought us near by the blood of Christ. He will never leave us nor forsake us. He is an ever-present help in time of need. In every sense of that way, the Lord is with us. And He is always there, even when it's dark. And we read a, a, a song to that effect, or sang a song to that effect this morning. Even when it's dark, even when it's discouraging, even when the presence of the Lord is not felt close at hand or seen close at hand, And when he seems distant, he's very near. And that would be a tremendous encouragement to the Philippians. To know that in the presence of persecution, the enemies that he warned them about in chapter 3, that the Lord is ever present and always there. He is near. That's a very encouraging thing. But also it is true that the Lord is near temporally in terms of time. It is true that my being in the presence of Christ is a very near thing. Now, it might be 40 years off from the earthly perspective, but I don't think that Paul is describing earth's perspective. I think he's giving us a heavenly perspective and telling us, look, the Lord is near. And you could go to be in the presence of the Lord in one of two ways. It may be that the Lord comes back. His return, I think, is very near. I know for certain it's 24 hours nearer right now than it was yesterday at this same time. It's near. And it's always been near. And it has always been ready. And I believe that it has always been imminent. And none of us knows the day or the hour, but in a very real sense, the coming of Christ is a very near event. And Paul mentions that event back in chapter 3. Just a few verses ago, remember? We are citizens of heaven from which we eagerly wait for a Savior who will transform the body of this humble state into conformity with the body of His glory. And now Paul reminds us that's nearer than you think. It is nearer than you think. Second, you could go to be with the presence of Christ through your death. And friends, that's nearer than you think. It's close. Life is a vapor. This coming week, I'm doing two funeral services. One on Monday afternoon for somebody that I've never met. I've never met the family. I've never even heard the name. I was called up and I was asked to do the service, and I'm, I'm glad and happy to go do that on occasion if I have the time and I can do it. I try and do that and minister to a family, and, and any opportunity to preach the gospel, I relish that. I love it. I'm there. So I'm going to do that on Monday afternoon for a couple. A lady and uh, her husband died. They've been married uh, 46 years. He was 76 years old. And then I'm doing the service, the graveside service for Mo Ballison a friend of our congregation, uh, this coming Tuesday afternoon. And I can tell you, as a the time that I remember as a high school boy just learning how to hunt, my uncle took me over to Moe's house. 5.30 in the morning, you sit down at the table and you have a cup of coffee and there's smell of bacon and eggs, which always made me hungry, but I never got to enjoy because he had already eaten it all. And then we would go out and we would head out and get in the truck and we would go hunting all day long and then come back to his house and hunt at his, at his land. That seems like it was just yesterday. Seems like it was just yesterday. Life's a vapor. And man, if you're here and you're older, you know how fast time flies. I could be, you could be in the presence of Christ this afternoon. An aneurysm, a stroke, a heart attack, a car accident on the way home. You could be in the presence of Christ this afternoon. It's near isn't it? And that's encouraging to me. Why? Because I'm looking forward to going home. 
especially after election week. Looking forward to going home. And I look more forward every day to the day I get to go home. I anticipate that greatly. I want the new heavens and I want the new earth where righteousness dwells. And I want to be in the presence of Christ. And if He chooses to take me home, or if He chooses to come and get me, whichever way that works out, it is very near, nearer than I think it is. And so it is a motivation to us. Now, do I have to choose between whether Paul is speaking of the nearness of Christ spatially, as in in my vicinity and close at hand, or whether he is talking about the nearness of Christ temporally, as in I could go to be with him at any moment, or he could return at any moment? Does it matter which one of those the Apostle Paul is talking about? I don't think it does. I don't think you have to choose between the two of them because both of them are true. And so when the Apostle Paul says the Lord is near, I think he means the Lord is near in every sense in which you can understand that. He is near at hand. He is near to you. You are near death. It is near His coming. He's near. Always there. And always near and close at hand. So that's an encouragement to the Philippians. In fact, I think that it is that statement the Lord is near that gives particular meaning and significance to the very next sentence that the Apostle Paul writes in verse 6. Be anxious for nothing. Right? Now, if I just tell you, look, don't worry about anything. That's not going to mean anything to you. You say that's easier said than done. But when I tell you the Lord is near, therefore you can be anxious for nothing. You ought to worry about absolutely nothing. Suddenly, that has meaning, doesn't it? Because the Lord is near. Do I need to fear my death? No, He's near. Do I need to fear what others can do to me? No, He's near. Do I need to fear the results of an election? No, He's near. Do I need to worry about my financial situation or my circumstances? No, the Lord is near. And so we'll look more at that phrase, be anxious for nothing. Worry about nothing and pray about everything. And we'll look at that next week. Let's pray together. Our Father, we rejoice in Your nearness to us. That is the promise of Scripture, and we know it to be true. We also know, God, that Your grace is sufficient for us in every need and in every time. And as Your people, we bow before You and ask that You would work a grace in our hearts that we might understand the necessity of showing a gentle spirit toward all men. Give us the ability to see that it is not just the outward conformity to that standard that pleases You, but it is the genuine transformation of the Spirit which brings you glory and one that is evident to everybody in all circumstances. As we have the peace of Christ, we ask that you give us the grace to rejoice in, our, in you as we are content in you and to be gentle toward others as we are content in you. We ask this by your grace for your glory. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.